0: Welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations, book recommendation episodes, and insider information on all of the newest releases that I have read and endorse, and on the publishing industry in my Behind the Scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations or to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. In 2023, I have a new segment on my Tuesday episodes called read Alike Requests. Listeners can submit a book they loved and tell me why they loved it, and I will suggest some similar reads. There is a Google form included in today's show notes if you would like to send in a request. If you love to read, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon group to access additional content, including bonus episodes and early reads with pre-pub author chats. For March, there are two books, Colleen Oakley's new book, The Mostly True Story of Tanner and Louise, and Fifth Avenue Glamour Girl by Renee Rosen. And for April, my selection is The Comeback Summer by writing duo Allie Brady. The link to join is in the show notes. Today, Amy Techter is returning to chat about the foulest things. Amy has spent more than 20 years plumbing the secrets squirreled away in archives. Whether it's uncovering a whale's ear, true story, and a box of old photographs, Or working in The Hague for the United Nations International Criminal Tribunal for War Crimes in the former Yugoslavia. She has been privy to hidden records and extraordinary secrets. She now works at Canada's National Archives and is an adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa. Amy lives in Ottawa, Canada, with a daughter named Violet, a husband named Andrew, and a dog named Daffodil. I hope you enjoy our conversation.
1: Coming up on Five Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis.
0: And now for today's read-alike request segment. Today's request is from Suzanne, and she selected The Age of Dreaming by Nina Revoir. While I was not familiar with this book until Suzanne suggested it, it is set during one of my favorite time periods, the silent film era in Hollywood. The Age of Dreaming explores the history of Los Angeles, the heady beginnings of the movie industry, and the interplay of race and celebrity, all told through the voice of a forgotten silent film star who must gradually come to terms with his past. So while I have not read The Age of Dreaming, I have read a number of books set then. So finding read alikes for it was just a matter of deciding which titles fit Suzanne's descriptions of what she liked about the book best. Suzanne enjoyed the book because she likes stories of old Hollywood, enjoys learning about events in history that are seldom talked about, and dual timelines. She was also enamored with the way the book quietly addressed larger themes like the indignities of aging, how absolute truths are often a matter of perception, and how we are all shaped by our past, even if we try not to be. My first recommendation is Miss Del Rio by Barbara Mujica, which came out last fall. Miss Del Rio tells the story of Dolores Del Rio, the first Latina star to make it big in Hollywood in the early years of the industry. It touches on many of the same topics that the Age of Dreaming does, and provides so much fascinating history about the era. As I read about the Age of Dreaming, Miss Del Rio immediately came to mind because both books focus on similar themes, including racism in Hollywood and aging. My next recommendation is City of Flickering Light by Juliette Fay, a book about three friends who head to Hollywood to make it big in the silent film industry. Faye clearly did a lot of research for this book, and I love that the book includes cameos from a variety of silent film stars and others involved in the early flickers business, the term initially used for movies. This book is a wonderful window into the early Hollywood years, making it a great read-alike for the age of dreaming. The last book I am recommending as a read-alike is actually a series called The Roaring Twenties Mystery Series by Mary Miley. These books feature Jessie Beckett, a former vaudeville performer who works for Douglas Fairbanks at Pickford Douglas Studios, which will eventually become United Artists. The first book is not set in Hollywood, but the next three are, and in connection with her job, Jessie keeps getting embroiled in murder-solving. Douglas Fairbanks, Myrna Loy, and Mary Pickford appear in the books at various times, which I loved, and the books very effectively bring to life 1920s Hollywood. There are two more books set in Golden Age Hollywood that I quickly wanted to highlight. Both are set after the end of the silent film era, but are great looks at what Hollywood was like in its early years. The first is Finding Dorothy by Elizabeth Letts about the filming of The Wizard of Oz, and the second is All the Stars in the Heavens about the filming of The Call of the Wild with Loretta Young and Clark Gable. Both provide engaging glimpses into that era. Thanks, Suzanne, for submitting a read alike request, and I hope you enjoy these recommendations. And now, onto my conversation with Amy Techter. Welcome, Amy. How are you today?
1: I'm great, Cindy. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm so glad you're here because I loved your book last year, The Honeybee Emeralds, and I was very excited to get to read the first in your new series, The Foulest Things. And that's what you're here to talk about today.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Thanks very much.
0: Well, why don't we start out with you talking a little bit about The Foulest Things?
1: Sure. It's the first in a Dominion Archives mystery series. So the books will be centered around archives. And in the first book, we're introduced to Jess Novak, who's a young uh, professional. She's just started working at the National Archives in Ottawa. She's very sort of insecure about her career and her place there and is desperate to kind of impress people and secure her position. And so in doing her work she uncovers a mysterious letter. I love mysterious letters. <laughs> Which connects her to goings-on in Paris in the first right right at the outbreak of the First World War, not the Second World War, but the first one. And so she's doing further research into this letter that she's discovered. She sneaks into the art vault where she's not meant to go and she stumbles across a body in the art vault. And then that connects her to a murder that's occurred. And so she's forced to sort of investigate the mur- murder while she's also trying to figure out the sort of history and story behind this mysterious letter. The two end up having some connections. And so that embroils her further into this into this mystery that she's trying to untangle as a as a bit of an amateur sleuth.
0: Well, before we start talking more about the story itself, and how you decided to focus on the letter and the art and all of that, Will you tell me a little bit more about the Dominion Archives? Because I'm in the United States. I wasn't really familiar with that. I feel like some of my listeners may not be as well.
1: Absolutely. Well, the Dominion Archives doesn't actually
0: exist. I've invented it. Oh, well, see, then I'm glad I asked this question.
1: (laughs) I based it on my actual, my workplace where I have worked for the past 20 years, which is called Library and Archives Canada. And it's the National Library and the National Archives of Canada. So it's like in the states, you have a National Archives uh, that keeps a close watch on presidents and what they're doing with their <laughs> with their papers when they leave office. And then you have the Library of Congress. So in Canada, it's like those two institutions are, are one institution altogether. And so I based I base the Dominion Archives on Library and Archives Canada, where I where I work, but it's only loosely based. I hasten to add, because of course there are no murders happening in my workplace and it's much more <laughs> functional than the dysfunction I portray in the book. But a National Archives is most countries have them and it's it's the repository for unpublished, unpublished records and and uh, papers either created by governments or it can they can also hold records created by individuals who are prominent, usually at the national level. So You know, famous authors or writers or artists or politicians, as well as the records created by government institutions, would all be held at a National Archives. And they're usually a really rich source for historians, and uh, lawyers often need to go back and look at the historic records. And then authors also often use archives to do more historic research when they're writing their books. I have
0: been to the National Archives in DC, and I am familiar with it holding a lot of governmental documents but I don't know that I knew the distinction about unpublished papers and obviously the archives here have been in the news because of all these presidential papers that keep getting found by various presidents and vice presidents so I do understand that part of it but I didn't realize you had invented the Dominion Archives so I'm really glad I asked this question why did you decide to invent it versus just using what Canada has
1: well it's Canada's a little weird in that it's combined its national library and its national archives cuz like you said most like nara the national archives in the states or the equivalent in the UK and Australia, all the all the other countries, they usually just hold those government records. But Canada holds private records and then has also merged with the, its national library, which is all the publications. So it just was a little more complicated to explain in a novel. And the, and the part that I've always worked in and the part that I'm most familiar with is that archives part, that unpublished part. So I thought it would just be easier to just concentrate on that element of the story, which is why I only included that in in the book, really. So, and it draws it a little further away from the place where I actually have to go every day <laughs> <laughs> and, and earn my paycheck. So, I, I didn't want it to be too closely affiliated and, you know, raise eyebrows or, you know, have colleagues be concerned that I was going to write about them. So, I, it, it's a little bit more distinct. It's its own thing, and then I can do, I can, you know, have all kinds of crazy stuff happen there and not worry that I'm going to anger my employer. <laughs>
0: Or have people saying, "Well, this is not exactly how it's set up." you <laughs> turned right here. That's not what you'd encounter. So it is nice to do that. The other question I had for you that I was going to ask later, but I'll ask now: Is the archivists in your book are super competitive and not very nice to each other? I'm assuming your work environment is not like that.
1: It is not like that. Although you know, there are little kernels. There are little moments in any in any career where you know some tempers have flared and some competitiveness or, or things have happened. Not necessarily to me, but I've heard about it or seen it. And so I definitely use some of that because in the novels, because part of what attracts me is the archives. And I like writing about that and the connection to history. But the people who work in archives are often a little quirky and quite passionate because it's a bit of a weird, it's a little bit of a weird thing to go into and it's quite niche. And then, so there are interesting characters that you can develop there that are very, very loosely based on the truth. And then similarly, the people who come to use archives are often a, a little bit quirky. So it makes it makes for a fun environment to write in.
0: Where did the idea for the story come from?
1: Well, the the idea really came, I was a young archivist at one point, and um, had a lot of the same sort of insecurities and worries as my main character in The foulest Things. I liked exploring that. And then the actual... What happens is that my protagonist, very early on in the book, so it's not a spoiler, goes into the art vault and they they have these um this shelving, this movable shelving that you you sort of turn a crank and it moves the shelving apart and that way they can maximize space and I was in not the art vault but a vault in our beautiful storage facility that we have, and I was cranking the wheel to turn the stack, and I thought, "Oh, wouldn't it be creepy?" And I was all alone in there, and it was echoey and a little nervous making. And I thought, wouldn't it be creepy if I uncranked this stack and a body tumbled out? So really, that was the genesis for the whole book was somebody finds a body in the stacks. And who, how did that body get there? And you know, what's the story of it?
0: It's a clever premise. And that's the other thing I like about the archives being the main setting. That's not something I've read about before. And I always enjoy stories that are different and have unique premises.
1: Oh, great. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's very familiar to me, but I'm glad it's 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 new and interesting to new people. Definitely. Well, what kind of research did you have to do? Well, the the work environment stuff I really drew from my own experiences. Especially, things have changed a lot since I started as a as a new archivist. So I was really returning to my memories of how things used to be in a lot of ways. Um, so that was that was fairly straightforward. And then uh, I can't seem to resist putting a bit of history into any book that I write, much as I try. So the letter that my that my protagonist that Jess uncovers is from a young struggling artist right at the start of the First World War who lives in who's living in Paris. And so I was actually able to use a whole bunch of research that I had done. Uh, I did a PhD on the representation of disability. In Canadian novels of the First World War. So I had been reading for years before that, I had read essentially every book that had been published between 1914 and 1925, or 1930 probably, that that was written in Canada. And so I had been very immersed in that exact time period and looking at attitudes to war, turns of phrase, all of that, and, and doing a whole bunch of historical research into that era. So I was extremely familiar with that era. So that research, you know, was, I was just able to capitalize on that research. And I used some of the turns of phrase from some of the book, you know, whenever I came across something that, that I really enjoyed, I jot it down and just to try to get the language and the nuance of this person's letters coming from, from Paris, trying to, trying to get that flavor of the time. And uh, yeah, so that was a lot of fun to write. And it was very satisfying to use my obscure doctoral research in some other format that's now going to be read more widely. So that was very gratifying as well.
0: It is nice when you've done research like that and you're like, okay, great, I can just plop all of
1: that right into this book. Yeah, absolutely. What about the art angle? Well, so that I didn't know as much about because there's a connection through the letters and through the murders to a missing Rembrandt portrait. And so that I didn't know anything about. And so that, that was where I really was doing my research, reading lots of articles digging things up, looking at, you know, I didn't, well, did I go and actually see a Rembrandt? I don't think I, I purposely sought out Rembrandts, but, you know, looking at photos of them in the, in art books and that sort of thing and, and reading a lot about different techniques and painting techniques and, and, and timelines and that sort of thing. So, but it was mostly, I wasn't going to archives to do that research. I was mostly relying on, um, well, the internet and on books.
0: I absolutely love art. It's one of my favorite things to do when I travel places, go to whatever art museum is in that city. And I've always been completely fascinated with these art thefts and how Mm -hmm. the thieves get away with it and how the paintings are hidden and what happens with them. So I really liked that aspect of your story. Oh, great. Yeah, it is fascinating. It really is fascinating. And obviously, those things have changed so much over time as museums have kind of gotten smarter about making sure their security is better and in place. But I just thought, I really like that whole Rembrandt art storyline that was woven into your book. Thank you. What was the hardest part about writing the book?
1: That's a great question. Um, it came pretty easily. This one kind of flowed out, um, so it wasn't too hard. I think probably I'm a I'm a pantser as opposed to a plotter. I'm sure you're familiar with those terms, the I, I don't have an outline when I start writing. I just start writing and I see what happens. And it's hard. To, <laughs> it is trickier to do that when you're when you've got a, um, a murder mystery, when you've so you've got to lay out clues and put you've got to seed things early in the story that then pay off at the end. And what because I don't know how things are going to end, it can be difficult. Well, I, I don't seed anything early. I write a whole first draft. And then I go back and I start doing revisions and I make connections that I didn't even know were there. So that, that second draft is always a bit tricky because that's always where I've now got to start thinking, how's this all going to connect? And what's the, how's the payoff going to be satisfying for the reader? So that's probably, that's probably the hardest. That was the hardest bit for me for this one.
0: I always find it fascinating that people can be pantsers and write murder mysteries, because as you just described, it seems like that would be difficult. But doing what you said, writing the first draft, then going back and inserting some of the clues, figuring out how the story should progress and connect up is probably a great way to do that.
1: Absolutely. And what I have found now, because I start, I finally am trusting that this is my process and I kind of can't fight it, so I might as well go with it. And what has always paid off and what is has been one of the great joys of doing any writing for me is that without even knowing it, it's almost like magic. Something that some throwaway thing that I'll have written in the first chapter that I didn't think had any meaning or matt you know, I was just throwing it in because I was interested in it, will at the end be super significant and important to the story or to the character or to some sort of like without even know, my brain is doing it without it telling me what it's up to. <laughs> almost. And so it's, it's this, it is, it feels like magic, like this, these moments of discovery that I get when I'm doing my revisions, when I'm on my second, third, fourth drafts are like, oh, wait, this connects with that. And all I need to do is tweak this. And suddenly it'll make sense that X, Y, and Z happened. And that's, that's really satisfying.
0: It's like your mind is working on it behind the scenes.
1: Yeah. And, and, and I have tried, believe me, I have tried to be an outliner because I think I'd be a lot more efficient and I'd be less stressed. Um, but my mind doesn't want me to. So <laughs> I'm starting to accept that. Well, let's talk about the second in the
0: series, which will be out in March. Correct?
1: That's right. Yeah, Speak for the Dead comes out uh, March fourteenth. So, tell me a little bit about that one. Well, it's the second in the, in the Dominion Archives Mystery series, but it is um, it doesn't have any of the same characters. So, I've I've kept the setting, uh, and I'm exploring new a new cast of characters. The Foulest mm-hmm. Things was set in 2010, and this one is set in present day. It's about a sort of embittered, chain smoking coroner who um, is struggling. Her her sort of best friend and and brother has died very suddenly and tragically, and so she's really struggling with her grief and her complex emotions around that. And she's called out to a to a to a death at the Dominion Archives this time at a really creepy, spooky, old, disused Air Force building that is used to store nitrate film. And a, a young woman has killed herself. And so the coroner's. so Kate, my, my protagonist for that one, is called out to investigate. She arrives and doesn't think it is suicide, much to the police's chagrin, because they want a quick case that wraps up quickly. So she, she decides to investigate on her own and, uh, of course, uncovers uh, link, histor- links to the past, because uh, as I said, I can't stop writing about history and how it connects to the present that sort of unveil maybe a, a more complicated and a, a death than what would appear. And so she's she's got to work to solve that and figure it out.
0: So I'm completely intrigued that you're writing a series with different characters. So the underlying thread of your series is going to be the Dominion Archives.
1: Well, that's what you would think I was up to, but <laughs> I am a little concerned about my <laughs> My choices, but I, I am committed because I have actually already written the third book in the Dominion Archives series, which should logically take place at the Dominion Archives, and that's certainly what I set out to write. But I, I couldn't, I I couldn't make it work for whatever reason. So the third book, which will be out hopefully next year, is going to be called Honor the Dead, and it will feature Kate again, the same the same uh, protagonist from Speak for the Dead. And there will be archives and a historical connection in the in the sort of mystery in the murder. But she she will actually be in a different location, uh, in the eastern townships of Quebec, which is which is where I'm from originally. It's solving a murder there, and I kept trying to move her back to Ottawa and to the Dominion Archives, but she she wouldn't come with me. And so in the end, this book has been is pretty much all set in the eastern townships which uh, your listeners might know because it's uh, Louise Penny sets all her Three Pines is set in a sort of fictionalized Eastern Township. So it's a little, it's like down the road from Three Pines, maybe. (laughs) It's a different kind of book.
0: That's very helpful context because I don't read the Louise Penny book. So I did not know that. I know so many people do. And so I'm sure that is helpful context for them. So is Jess just going to be done after
1: book one? Well, you know, the writing of these books I was not I haven't been um I don't know marketing savvy about it. I've written the books that I wanted to write. and so I wrote I actually wrote The Foulest Things many years ago, which is why it's a little why there's this kind of funny story. It kind of has become a, a prequel, I guess to the to the other books, but it was it has been published, and I've had a really enthusiastic reader response about Jess as a character. so I, I want to bring her back. so she can she can pop back in. In later books, and maybe she and Kate can can interact and and solve mysteries together. That's that's my thinking now. So she, she, I'm not done with her. I'd like I'd like to return to her for sure.
0: Well, I was curious about that because I did enjoy her, and I thought, oh, you spent all this time developing her, and then she's not returning. So I'm glad to hear she may return. Yes. Well, what do you hope readers take away from your first book and from the series?
1: well probably like the very obvious theme is that connection with history that i like i as i said I've, i work at the national archives here in canada so i do spend my my time thinking about it and seeing in real time like how 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 deeply connected we are to the past and how easily lost that connection is or how how we think we always think we're inventing things anew and it you know we have, we have been doing the same things over and over and over again as human beings and as societies. And and it's all there. It's like, we have the template for, for what works and what doesn't. And we just, we are so good at forgetting. And so, I don't know, I think if people wanted to, to take away some grand thing, it would be that, you know, investigate history and, and, you know, be curious about it because it can teach us so much about, who we are and how we got here and, and where we're going. So I guess that's my message.
0: I do think you're right that people don't always know history, so we're doomed to repeat it. But I also think people often know history and we're still doomed to repeat it because everybody thinks we're not going to do it this way this time. Like we've learned enough. We've learned from this. This is not going to happen, but it still happens anyway.
1: A hundred percent. It's it's that human nature element, you know, that we that we, we all think that our own experience is somehow unique. And of course it is, but also it kind of isn't. So there's some balance there. And just some themes that
0: seem to just repeat and repeat.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, how did you come up with the title for
1: The Foulest Things? It was called um, The Paris Letters for a very long time. But then I wrote and published it because I wrote Phallus Things before my very first, my debut novel, which was The Honeybee Emeralds. The Honeybee Emeralds is a different. It's not a murder mystery. It's a lighthearted mystery set in Paris, and that and, and and like I said, it was set in Paris. So then I thought, oh, is the Paris letters a a little bit generic, maybe, and b kind of too close to honey? What I've just done with Honeybee Emeralds, and in fact, it's not set in Paris. So I don't want to. I certainly don't want to mislead people into buying my book and then having them be disappointed uh, that it doesn't take place in Paris. So I was casting around for. Uh, for uh, new book ideas. And I was reading through the book in during the editorial process. And I came across the quote that a scholar has made about uh, Rembrandt's work, which is that he, he paints these, these, these foulest things in, 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 in dim lighting. And that was, that was sort of his, his, his uh, analysis. So I thought that, I thought that was nice and eerie and a little bit creepy and, and, uh, and worked well.
0: It is a little eerie and creepy, so and it ties in well once you get to that part of the book. I was just curious how you would landed on it.
1: Well, I had a list. I'd gone through, and it was. I remember we were we were at a cottage, and it was the summer, and my daughter and her friend were there, and so and they they were probably eleven at the time, and so I I said to them, I read them the list and said which one's the winner, and they both picked that, and so I said, great, if my if the publisher picks this, I'll I'll pay you each thirty dollars. <laughs> And then of course they both remembered and I had to I had to pay them out so you yeah,
0: had anyway. to pony up.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, before we wrap up, what have you read recently that you really liked? Well, I'm in the middle of reading Prague Spring on a recommendation from another uh, podcast which is um Strong Sense of Place, which is a literary podcast about locations and they were looking at Czechoslovakia and Prague Spring is this wonderful book by si- Simon Mar. I think it came out a few years ago but it's um it's kind of a spy novel set in the 1960s. So it's kind of got that f- kind of fun uh, Cold War vibe. So I'm I'm really enjoying that. And then a nonfiction um that has is becoming my Bible is <laughs> Untangled by um Lisa, I think her last name's Dem Moore. It's a guidebook to your teenage daughter, (laughs) Ah. (laughs) which I am finding extremely helpful with my 13-year-old these days. Like it's every page. I'm like, oh, yes, yes, I know this. So that's, so that's, I'm enjoying that one.
0: 13 is a hard age. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) It gets better. I promise.
1: promise. (laughs) 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 They get
0: past those like 13 and 14 and then things settle. High school, they really settle down.
1: That's what I'm hoping.
0: I don't know how it is in Canada. Like, I don't know how your grades are broken out. But for what is the equivalent of our 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th, things are much better.
1: Okay. All right. I'm, I'm getting there. So that, that gives me hope. Thank you. Yes, for sure.
0: Well, Amy, I'm so glad you joined me again on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. It was delightful to chat with you again.
1: Uh, this was really wonderful. I always enjoy your podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the professional, professional Book, book nerds. Nerds.
0: Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen. And as always, happy, happy reading. reading. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time.